Hi, guys. Um, our passage tonight comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, uh, verse 21. And you can follow along in your handout or on the screen. <clears throat> and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hands and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. After college, I spent uh, two years. I went to college at the University of Oklahoma. Spent two years uh, after college working, uh, well, a little bit of time working in the business world. And then after that, uh, two years interning, actually, with RUF at Vanderbilt University. And uh, I didn't know anything about Vanderbilt. In fact, when I got the phone call that I was moving to Vanderbilt, some of you heard the story. Uh, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's cool. I've never been to Memphis. And um, got home that night and did it at Vanderbilt University. In fact, I'm moving to Nashville, not Memphis. Um, but I arrived on campus, and as I began to learn that place and get to know the kind of students that were there, I realized this, that it was all about the next step for those undergrads. Uh, there were many there who uh, were pre-med, and they were at that elite university hoping and wanting and most likely getting in to a top-tier medical school. Or some were there getting uh, pre-law degrees of history or English or whatever so that they could get into a top-tier law school. 
Others of them went straight from undergrad into investment banking up in New York City or in Charlotte, North Carolina. But their minds were so programmed to the next step that they had, in my estimation, a hard time enjoying exactly what it was right before them. They were always at that next step. Uh, specifically, there was a guy that I got close with. His name, his name was John Nesbitt. And John was a very social, likable guy. And when he graduated from Vanderbilt, he landed a great job at this huge insurance company up in New York City. And uh, so he went off in May and worked there for five or six months. And I saw John that next fall. He came back to Nashville, I think, for homecoming. And I was talking with him. I was asking him, you know, is this, dro- is this job everything you thought it would be? And he said, Brent, I am so bored. <laughs> I am bored out of my mind. I was like, man, are you, you're in New York City. You have this job that is exactly what you wanted. He said, I know, but it's just, it's not what I thought it would be. And they're not training me. They're not giving me enough work. And so I'm sitting there and I'm bored and I just don't know what to do. He said, but I did learn how to do the file walk. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well... On the days when it's just unbearable, I grab a manila folder and I stuff some random papers in there from around my cubicle and I put it in my hand and I put my sport coat on and I walk out the door, get on the elevators, go down the elevators and head out into New York City on a file walk. He said, because I've learned that if you have a file in your hand, nobody questions what you're doing. You look important. You look like you're on a mission. And John said he would go on file walks for hours. I'm just totally dismissing work and heading out into the city uh, so he could find some kind of life in that. Man, I love that story. I love that he just had the courage to to do that as a 22-year-old in an insurance company. That, I think, is the question that, uh, that that scenario bubbles under the surface for most of you guys. That you're in college, you don't want to end up in a job like that. Some of you look at what your parents have been doing or what they've done for the last 20 or 30 years, and you're just like, I am going to do anything but what my mom did. Or I want to do something other than what my dad did. It is so lame. And so what, what happens is that in society, we begin asking people in like, I don't know, ninth grade, so what do you want to do with your life? It's like, I don't know. I'm about to go put toilet paper in my friend's trees and plan the escape. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. But that question is forced on us, and it starts that engine of of worry and of, of thinking, oh, my gosh, I better do something big and significant and awesome. And you come to college, and some of you are juniors and seniors, and you're still thinking, I need to do something awesome and significant, and you just don't know what that looks like yet. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is this. That if you are ever going to be able to answer the question, what should I do or what am I going to do with my life, you have to ask a more foundational question than that. And it is this, who am I? Who am I and what is the purpose of my life? Or to ask it maybe a different way, what is my mission in life? What is the foundation upon which I'm going to build my career? Or what's the soil out of which I'm going to grow up as a man or woman? What is in that? What is your mission? 
Tonight, Jesus is coming in in this passage. And we've seen for the last couple of weeks, if you haven't been here, you can listen to it on the podcast. But as, uh, as, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, Jesus has come into the world and he's saying, I have good news. I have the best news in the world. I am the king and I have defeated Satan and nothing is ever going to be the same. And then last week we looked at Jesus as he begins to call people to follow him. And this week, we get our first glimpse into what Jesus is doing. We get to see the mission of Jesus begin to be unfolded in front of our eyes, and it is captivating. It's thrilling. And what I want to suggest is that if you are ever going to be able to answer the question, what is the purpose of my life, then you have to ask yourself this question. Does what Jesus did in his life and on his mission affect anything at all about me? Or is that simply something I can look at and say, that's cool, no thanks. What does the mission of Jesus say about your mission? And look, I think that question is important for you whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian or not. Because if you would, that's obviously going to have huge implications for your vocation and your career and the way that you treat others and what kind of job you end up taking. If you're not a Christian, you will at least, in looking at Jesus and his mission, be able to say, okay, that is not what I have seen embodied by Christians or the churches around me. I have seen people hating other people in the name of Jesus. I have seen Christians do awful things. And what I want you to see, if nothing else, is that that is not Jesus' heart. That he came to do something totally different than that. What is it? The first thing we see that Jesus came to do is that Jesus came to teach. Jesus came to teach. If I was to ask you uh, in a one-on-one setting, uh, who was your favorite teacher? You would list somebody off, maybe a a high school teacher or maybe even a counselor or a college professor you've had. And if I were to follow that up and say, what made that person such a great uh, and influential person to you or such a great teacher? You would list off, you know, they really drew us in or she spent extra time with me whenever I had trouble in this way. Somehow you connected with them. Uh, For me, I would answer that question by saying Mrs. Battles. Mrs. Battles was uh, a Spanish teacher at Duncan High School. Go Demons. That's weird. Uh, Our mascot was demons. It really was the demons. Every year, some church in town would try to raise a petition to get their name changed. It never worked. But um, because we're the demons. Um, But Miss Battles uh, was so endearing. She went over and above to to really connect with us and to engage us with the material in AP Spanish, which was hard. And she was a master, a master, not just at communicating information, but at teaching and at educating in such a way that it captured our imaginations. That as she conferred that information to us, our hearts and minds were drawn to the scenarios like this. Well, okay, if that's true, what does that mean for this? And what if that... And you you begun to enter into this process with Miss Battles. She was a master at that. That's what good teaching does. It grabs us. It it takes us from one place to another. And friends, Jesus came to do that. 
He came to do that in his teaching. If you look down at your uh, handouts right there, we're going to reference this several times tonight. Jesus says in verse, uh, I'm sorry, his disciples say in verse 37, they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach or teach there also. For that is why I came out. You see, Jesus moved about his mission with this self-conscious understanding that he had something to give people. He had a story. He had information. He had a narrative that he wanted to deliver people so that they, may, so that they might become engrossed in it and take it on themselves. And begin to ask questions like, well, if that becomes true about me, then what does that mean for the way that I treat these people? Or what does that mean for the tenor of my life? Jesus did that. He drew people into those kinds of questions and scenarios. But what's interesting about Jesus' teaching is that in this passage, we see two different responses to it. We see two very different responses to it. Actually, the first one is this. When Jesus came and preached and teached, there were some people who looked and said, this is strange. This is really strange. The things that he is saying are strange. Look back in verse 22. And uh, it says, And as Jesus taught, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, who were uh, the professional teachers of the day, religious and otherwise. And then down in verse 27 it says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So as Jesus went about uh, preaching and teaching about him being the king and this kingdom that he came to inaugurate and how he was going to change and redeem and restore all things, there were people that looked at him and said, this is bizarre. We've never heard any kind of teaching like this because he's teaching as one who has authority. As one who has authority. Now, what does that mean? One scholar, in studying this passage, he kind of unearths the root of that word authority. And he says what it means, kind of if you're just to go about it very literally, it means um, out of the original stuff. So hang with me. What that means is that when Jesus taught, when he was there presenting information and, and preaching and teaching to the crowds, he was teaching as someone who had original authorial expertise in his subject. As happens in our day, what happened back then, if you were a teacher or someone who was in the education uh, system, you would say, well, as Dr. So-and-so says, and you would reference his work or something they said or did, or as Rabbi So-and-so says, and you would reference some greater rabbi who came before you. But when Jesus came and taught, he said things like this, I say to you, Jesus had original authority because he was the author of the world. And when people heard his words, when it, when it went into their ears and down into their heart, something connected at a deep level that said, I have never heard anything like this before. This man is speaking as if he knows me down to the core. And he does. He had authority. And he taught from that place. So he was strange. That made him famous yet strange. But secondly, there were those there 
who Jesus' teaching was actually familiar to. There were some there who recognized him. Look down. In verse 24, there was a man possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit. And he's yelling to Jesus saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, that's a little bizarre. We have to acknowledge it. That is kind of strange that this man who is demon-possessed is looking at Jesus saying, Yeah, I know you. And down in 34, it says that there were many who knew him. The demons knew him. That would be unnerving if I was the new preacher in town. and I go out to the masses and most normal people are like, Good grief, I've never heard anything like this. And the crazies over in the corner are like, Yep. I know you. (laughs) Uh, Jesus, we need you to leave. What was going on here? Why why would the demons have recognized Jesus' voice in his teaching? Let me give it a shot. It's a a very kind of complex answer, but I'm going to try and distill it down to something that we can get tonight. Mainly that I can get. Y'all are smarter than me. For thousands of years, Christianity has taught this. This is a foundational message of the Bible, that we live in a world that is not just material in nature. That there is, yes, there is a physical realm to this world, obviously, right? But in Scripture, we read that when God created the world, Himself being a spirit, that He breathed life into it, and specifically into humanity. In Genesis 2-7, God created man, male and female, after his own image. And then it says that he breathed life into them. And what that means at least is this. That there is a parallel spiritual world that is operating alongside this physical realm and world. And when Jesus came, he was there physically, being God but also man. He was there physically But he was there also doing something extremely spiritual in nature. And here's what he came to do. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He came to defeat evil and darkness for good. And the reason that the demons in this passage and the demons throughout the gospel story will continue to recognize Jesus and run from him and be afraid of him is they knew who he was. They knew that he had come out and defeated their headmaster, Satan. They knew that Jesus was more powerful than them, and they were terrified of him. I was trying to think of an illustration that that would capture this kind of duality at work here, both the physical and the spiritual, and randomly I started thinking about Southwest Airlines. Hold with me. Um, This guy named Herb Kelleher, uh, anybody know Herb? Neither. Uh, Herb Kelleher <clears throat> grew up in New Jersey, uh, went to undergrad at Wesleyan University, graduated with uh, uh, his JD from NYU. And in the early 70s, Herb moved to San Antonio, Texas, wanting to either start a law firm or a small business, hopefully hoping it would become a big business. And he sat there in San Antonio in 1971 with a friend, and on a cocktail napkin over dinner, after dinner one night, they sketched out the plans and the framework for what would become Southwest Airlines. And when they talked about what they wanted this airline to be and how they were going to get a competitive advantage by doing things just a little bit differently, there were two things that stood out that they were going to do differently. 
The first one was this, that they were going to fly their aircrafts into the lesser known airports in the region. So rather than flying into LaGuardia, they were going to fly into JFK or the opposite. I don't know which one's bigger. Rather than flying into Tulsa, they were going to fly into Claremore. Hang with me. Claremore doesn't have an airstrip. Right, but they would, what they would do is they would go to these smaller airports because there were less fees. And they would capture a little bit more profit by doing that. And the second thing that they decided they would do is that contrary to all other, golly, probably all other business models, they decided that they were going to spend their time and energy on their employees instead of the customers, which sounds bizarre. That sounds like it wouldn't make sense because the customer is always right and you have to have the best customer service. But what they decided is we're going to invest our time and resources in making our people, our people, feel loved and cared for, and we're going to move toward understanding them rather than just firing them. And so for four decades, Southwest Airlines has never laid off a single employee. How about that? Simultaneously, for four decades, they have been the single most profitable airline in the industry. Why? How did that work? Here's how it worked. Because when they were rolling out their plans, when they were coming into being in, in existence and in, in buying planes and operating their routes, they understood that there would be some things they could not change. That they were going to be flying airplanes. They were going to be taking people from one destination to another. But they realized if we can do this just a little bit better, if we can treat our people better, that will rub off on the customer. And people will be drawn to that. They won't know what to do with it at first. It will be strange and unique, but they will be drawn to it. And secondly, the other airlines, as they looked on, the ones who knew exactly what Southwest was doing, they looked at it in fear because they said, that is going to take us down, and it has. Friends, that's what happened with Jesus. There were those who saw what he was doing and understood, and they were terrified. And there were those who, who looked on and said, this is like nothing I've ever seen, and they were drawn in. How many of you have flown on Southwest Airlines? It's fun, isn't it? They sing the, the flight regulation songs. They make fun of themselves. They laugh. They, they talk like cowboys because most of them are and cowgirls. Like, it's just a fun, jovial atmosphere. They, they have a loyal following. And so did Jesus because he knew how to grab people. He knew how to capture them. He was a master teacher. But he was more, you see. Jesus was a healer. If the stated reason that Jesus came out was to teach, he said, that's why I've come out, then his healing serves to confirm that he was the real deal. That, yeah, there have been other great teachers come along, but nobody has ever been able to do the things that he's doing in healing people. Let's look at this. This worked uh, kind of like celebrity endorsements work in our day. Albeit, they've gotten a little weird because you have football players endorsing State Farm commercials, and that, there's no obvious connection there, right? Um, but back when I was growing up, you know, back in the old days, um, people like Shaquille O'Neal would be advertising for basketball shoes called the Reebok Pumps. 
Now, a uh, little blast from the pastor. What Reebok pumps were was a high top that would go halfway up your uh, leg, and they had a little rubber basketball on the tongue that you would pump, and it was an air pump. And as you pumped it, it would get tighter and tighter around your foot. Now, this is about 1990 when these shoes came out. They cost $135. I was in fourth grade, and it's the only thing that would have made Christmas work if I got Reebok pumps. So I terrorized my parents, asking them to give me Reebok pumps because Shaquille O'Neal is on TV, and he's the most amazing athlete. He says that I need them. Mom and Dad, I need them. Shaquille O'Neal also endorsed Icy Hot. Um, Icy Hot is this uh, strange thing that you put on your muscles when they are sore. And uh, I was doing lots of sports back then. Ended up not doing any, and you can see why. Um, but I think after football practice, I had a sore muscle. And so what, I, what did I do? I went to the drugstore, got Icy Hot, put it on my muscles. My muscle, just one. Um, <clears throat> and as it began to work, I realized this stuff is hot, right? Icy Hot. Um, so in my mind, I'm thinking, I need to go take a shower and wash this stuff off. So what did I do? I turned on a hot shower. I stepped in there. Yeah, that's right. It was a fire on my leg. I couldn't get rid of it. But I bought it because Shaquille O'Neal says this stuff works. Jesus came healing as if to say, yeah, my teaching is real. I am giving evidence to the fact that everything that I'm saying is in fact true. I am the author of the world. You can trust me. But not only do we see that Jesus was a healer, we have to look and see... Who are the people that he healed? Who are the people that he moved toward? And we see it in this passage first, and this is kind of obvious, but we need to see it. Jesus moves toward those who are oppressed and sick. You're thinking, yeah, because those are the people that need to be healed. That's exactly right. Verse 23, it's a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 30, it's a sick woman. 32, 34, 39, there were many who were oppressed or sick. Verse 40, the leper. The trajectory of Jesus' life is that when he shows up on the scene, he doesn't go to the people who are fine. He goes to those whose bodies are broken, whose minds are being crushed down by the cares of the world. He goes to the oppressed and the sick because Jesus loves those who are oppressed and sick. Do you... Do you get that? Do you believe that? That Jesus doesn't just love the oppressed and sick people. He loves you. He loves your family members. He cares and has concern for the actual people in your life who are sick and oppressed. He doesn't just love depressed people generally. He loves you as a depressed person. Jesus doesn't just love... Anxious people in generality, he loves you sitting there right now who cannot figure out how to get the motor of your heart to slow down. He doesn't just love sick people. He looks at you and says, no, I love you. I came for oppressed people like you. I came for sick people like your parents. And if you're following me at all, the next question in your mind has to be, then why am I still suffering? If Jesus cares so much, if he loves people who are hurting, then why hasn't he made this better yet? 
And I simply have to honestly and humbly say, I do not know. And Scripture holds these things in tension. It says, absolutely, Jesus cares for the brokenhearted and the faint in body and in spirit. And at the same time, in His infinite wisdom and in His perfect plan that He is working out to a T, He has deemed that He is not going to fix every instance of sickness and oppression in this life. The leper gets that. You see, he looks up and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. He's acknowledging Jesus' sovereign rule and reign and saying, I know you can. Will you? In that case, he did. But Paul, the great apostle who God used tremendously, talks of the thorn in his flesh. And we don't really know what it was, but he said that God chose not to remove it from him. Whether that was to keep him humble or whether that was to allow Paul to minister to people who were hurting, he had it his whole life. I don't know why, but it does not mean that Jesus does not care. He does. He cares for the sick and the oppressed, but we also see that he cares for the outsider. He moves toward and heals outsiders. Those who are outsiders mentally, in verse 26, The man with the unclean spirit, we don't really know. Schizophrenia, something is going on. Jesus moves toward him. He is not repelled from him. He moves toward him. We see him move toward those who are on the outside culturally. It would have been unthinkable in that day for a religious leader to move toward a woman. And Jesus goes to Simon's mother-in-law and he heals her and brings dignity to her and says, Oh, I care. Though everyone around you and the other religious leaders put you on the outside, I am putting you right at the center of who I care for. I care. And we also see that Jesus sees and loves those who are on the outside entirely. And we see that with the leper. Let's look at this a little more closely. Here is a man who in every sense of the word is an outsider. And here's why. That if you had contracted leprosy, which uh, could be any range of skin diseases in that day, it wasn't just what we think of as leprosy, you had to, by the rules and regulations in that culture, you had to live outside of the city. A lot of times back then, the bigger cities had walls, fortified walls. Camps had lesser walls, but you had to live outside of the walls of the city. Secondly, When you approached people, you had to scream out, unclean, unclean, so that people wouldn't get close to you and contract your disease. Imagine the psychological, emotional brokenness that that would cause in someone with leprosy. In addition, they had to wear clothes and they had to keep their hair messed up in a certain way to tell other people that I am not normal. In addition to saying unclean, you can look at me and tell that I am not okay. Don't touch me. They were considered dead men walking, dead women walking, because they were of no value to society. They might as well be dead. And if you're hearing that right, you ought to be internalizing that and saying, that's awful. That's awful that there would be anyone like that in society at all. 
And instead of us just being able to look back then and say, oh, we have to look at our own lives and say, you know what? Though when we walk around this campus or this city, we don't see lepers functionally through our actions, by the way we treat people, we declare and make people lepers. We treat people as if they have no worth, as if they are unclean, as if something they're doing or something they've done somehow puts them out there and will forever keep me on the other side of the wall from actually entering into their life. The way that we select people and bring them into our clubs or organizations and declare other people unfit creates lepers. Do you get that? That some of the ways that your organizations and things that you do go about selecting people is, is not right. And is undoing the very fabric of the world that God declared to be beautiful and that He is making so. And so when we do this, the story comes full circle because not, not only do we not look at other people who don't have leprosy or who do have leprosy or who we create to be lepers, what we realize is that I'm actually a leper of the heart. That I am the one who through my actions and in my words or in my not talking to someone or not acknowledging them, I am the one who is showing that at a deep level, my heart is unclean. And I need Jesus. Look, y'all, the gospel isn't just for those people. The gospel is for all of us because all of us have hearts that are leprous, that are unclean by the things that we have done against God's law and design for us. And also by the things that we have not done and the ways that we haven't loved those people around us, that makes us unclean before God. And what does Jesus do with that? We look at the leper here. He looks at Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And friends, if you are ever to come to Jesus, that will be at some level your prayer before him. Jesus, I need to be cleansed. And look how Jesus responds. He reaches out, touches this man, unthinkable. Touches this man and says, I will be clean. And the man is cleansed. Jesus came to teach and to heal because fully and finally Jesus came to restore and that's what happens. When Jesus touches you, when He grabs your heart and your life and says, there is nothing about you that is repulsive to me, I am for you. I will take you. I want you and I love you. Then you will become a follower of Jesus. And that restoration which has been done to your heart becomes the theme of your life. And in whatever you actually end up doing in a job, it will be of, almost, of secondary consequence because who you are and the purpose and the trajectory and the mission of your life will be firmly established in the restoration of Jesus and what He has done to you and what He is doing in the world through you and others like you. And that is the good news, is that nobody is outside His touch and His love and His cleansing, healing hand.
The question for you right now is, have you received his healing for your dirty heart? Because a Christian isn't someone who has a vague belief in God. A Christian is someone who has latched on to God's Son, Jesus Christ, and the unique, and the unique power He came to bring in healing people. Have you let Him heal you? And when He does, you will never be the same. Let's pray as we consider that. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come and apply your deep, deep healing to our hearts, which are broken, which have unintentionally and intentionally created a mess of life. And we have hurt people intentionally. And we have done things that are just the way we've always been, and it has been hurtful to others. And it has been offensive to you. And we thank you that in Jesus you do not hold our sins against us, but you forgive us. And now would we sing of that love which will not let us go and which is not embarrassed of us, but is glad to call us sons and daughters. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.